Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 108, The Greek War of Independence. First, as always, our new patrons. We've got Paula, Dmitrio Munoz, Zaromatev, and Matt Beadsworth. So, big thanks to all of you. It's been a really good month for Patreon, and I really appreciate it. It's also exciting because it just released this kind of first Bulgarian Empire documentary thing with a collaboration with the History of Antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel. Uh, also going to be on Nova Televisia in Bulgaria on Leap Day 2020, this Saturday, if you're listening to it now. and well, I got a couple other things in the work. So a lot of exciting stuff going on. So be sure to like the Facebook page. That's kind of the best place where I'm generally announcing this stuff. And yeah, you'll get all those updates as they come. So de- kind of delving right into it then. Last time, we covered the end of the turmoil of the Napoleonic era as the Congress of Vienna created a new, firmly anti-revolutionary Congress of Europe. Despite Europe's new aim to put an end to any of this revolution business, though, the second Serbian revolution succeeded because its leader, Miloš Obrenović, was content with an autonomous Serbia within the Ottoman Empire, something he achieved. Elsewhere, the Ottomans finally began bringing calm and some measure of prosperity back to Balkan lands by curtailing the power of local notables and hiring brigands to protect areas instead of, you know, stealing from them. Meanwhile, a revolutionary Greek organization, the Society of Friends, began a failed uprising in Wallachia and Moldavia before turning its attention to doing the same in Greece, but, you know, hopefully not failing this time. The Greeks, for their part, were torn between the prosperity and the power many of them enjoyed within the Ottoman Empire and dreams of independence, all the while struggling with their own identity. And so that's where this episode begins with the Greek War of Independence. Now, the moment we left off was when I'd finished explaining kind of the background of the Greek position in the Ottoman Empire. But there's one other person who mattered nearly as much as the Sultan in this moment, and particularly in terms of the Greek independence kind of revolution. And that brings us to the most powerful notable in the entire Balkans, Ali Pasha of Yeronina. Ali Pasha was of Albanian origin, from a long line of powerful notables, and had initially made his mark as a bandit. He was exceptionally good at this, and was eventually hired by the sultan to serve the empire, fighting rebels around the Balkans himself. He eventually used his political cachet to gain control of the Epirus region of Greece, just south of his native Albania, in 1788. So, by the 1820s, he had essentially established an independent state there. He could muster 50 to 100,000 soldiers. He ran his own foreign policy and no doubt made the sultans in Constantinople deeply nervous with his growing power. Lord Byron, after visiting his court, described him in this interesting manner. Quote, His highness is a remorseless tyrant, guilty of the most horrible cruelties. Very brave, so good a general that they call him the Mohammedan Bonaparte. 
but as barbarous as he is successful, roasting rebels, etc., etc., end quote. So, obviously, Byron had some interesting mixed feelings, but no doubt Ali Pasha made a strong impression on, well, basically everyone. Now, under his rule, despite his own ethnic origins as an Albanian, the Greek cultural revival flourished. His court language was, in fact, Greek. But still, he never consistently made himself kind of a friend or an enemy to anyone. He was always looking to play the sides, including those in favor of Greek independence. Now, all of this really came to a head in 1819 and 1820, when Ali Pasha assassinated a political rival in Constantinople, finally giving Mahmoud II the excuse he wanted and was looking for to curb the power of Ali Pasha in the Balkans. So, the Sultan ordered Ali Pasha deposed. Well, no surprise though, Ali Pasha basically told him to shove it. Like, you know, what, come with your army and, uh, you know, make me. So, that's what happened. 20,000 Ottoman soldiers were sent to deal with him, soon defeating his own army and actually laying siege to his capital. But there, resistance was fierce. And as 1820 dragged on into 1821, the Sultan decided to send his garrison from southern Greece to assist. Now, with that garrison gone, it was the perfect time to begin the Greek uprising. So the Greeks just could not ask for a better time. Well, maybe geopolitically they could, but they generally couldn't ask for a better time to start their uprising. The Ottomans are militarily weak. They're going through some military transitions. And best of all, the garrison in the Peloponnesus or Morea is gone. And so they decided this was the time. In April of 1821, the Metropolitan of Patras declared a Greek uprising at a local monastery. Now, remember, the initial reason for the first Serbian uprising was actually not to rebel against the Sultan, but actually to rebel against the abusive Janissaries who were ruling Serbia. But this time, things were different. As the Greek state stated, their, their initial aim was full independence and that they were opposing the entire Ottoman government, the entire Ottoman system, the Sultan, all of it. So they were much more ambitious than the Serbs. Within a month of this initial declaration, a string of condemnations came from the great powers of Europe. Russia, Austria, Prussia, Britain, and France all stated that they in no way supported this uprising. Well, no surprise. Remember, the Concert of Europe was all about suppressing these kinds of uprisings. And so, all these European powers really had to speak as one and say no. So, while Russia stated that it did not support the Greeks, though, well, they were doing a few other things on the side. They pressed the Persians to start a war with the Ottomans to help further divide Ottoman resources. Now, I didn't mention it, but the Russians had actually won two wars against the Persians in the last 16 years. So the Russians were in a very strong position against them. So within a year, the Persians invaded Kurdistan. This is an interesting kind of technique for the Russians, right? Like, they can't support this uprising, but they can, you know, do some little backroom deals that, in a way, kind of support the uprising. But still, despite all this, for now, there's a real lack of any international support for the revolt in Greece, but the revolt is going along anyways. Now, in the Peloponnese, the Greek rebels soon controlled the countryside while the Ottomans retreated into their fortresses where they could be resupplied by ship. 
This is no surprise. This is basically what happened in the previous, you know, Venetian wars in the Peloponnese and the uprisings there. It's generally like this. The Ottomans go into their fortresses. But in this case, unfortunately, the Greeks didn't have any artillery to dislodge the Ottomans from these fortresses. So pretty quickly, they ended up in kind of a stalemate. Central Greece had more mixed results, with some early defeats and then victories to recover from them on well, basically both sides. All the while, massacres and atrocities were committed all over, with Ottoman bands roaming the countryside and engaging in what they termed Greek hunts. The historian of modern Greece, George Finlay, described the reactionary behavior of the Greek rebels this way, quote, Human beings can rarely have perpetrated so many deeds of cruelty on an equal number of their fellow creates as were perpetrated on this occasion. Women and children were frequently tortured before they were murdered. After the Greeks had been in possession of the city for 48 hours, they deliberately collected together about 2,000 persons of every age and sex, but principally women and children, and led them to a ravine in the nearest mountains where they were murdered, every soul. End quote. Now bear in mind, Jordan Finlay is famous for being a major Hellenophile. He really likes the Greeks, and even he could not really sugarcoat how brutal uh, their reactions were. But again, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but this is a both sides situation. Both sides are committing terrible atrocities. And specifically, of the estimated 40,000 Muslims that were living in the Peloponnese at this time, about 15,000 are thought to have been killed in the first few months of the uprising alone. So yeah, this is a really brutal time with a lot of death on both sides. In response to the uprising, there was intense anti-Greek violence in Constantinople and around the empire. The Greek Orthodox patriarch there actually showed more loyalty to the Ottomans and excommunicated all of the rebelling Greeks. But unfortunately for him, this wasn't enough for the Sultan, you know, enough to kind of demonstrate loyalty, and the patriarch was soon executed, along with several Greek Orthodox bishops. This persuaded the Russians to issue an ultimatum, threatening to withdraw ambassadors if the lives and property of the Orthodox people were not protected. Remember, this is a legacy of, I'm forgetting the exact one, I think it's Kuchukinarka, not Bucharest, where Russia has an official role as a protector of Orthodox people within the Ottoman Empire. So this is another way where Russia is kind of finding ways to get around its, you know, basically legal obligation as a part of the Congress of Europe to really protect the status quo and to oppose revolutions. Despite that, you know, Russia also has a legal obligation to protect Orthodox people, and so they're finding little ways to pressure and to get involved. Still, despite the generally poor international reaction, or at least on the part of governments, the prominence of Philhellenism, right, a love of Greek things in Western Europe, led to many, you know, individuals going to volunteer and fight, including the aforementioned Lord Byron, who would famously die in Greece. In addition, hundreds of Bulgarians also went to fight, at least one of whom actually obtained a high rank within the Greek forces. So, you know, remember, there's going to be a lot of Bulgarians who are going to go fight in the Greek uprising, and they're going to learn a lot, and they're going to bring those ideas and those thoughts about, well, all kinds of things, whether it's you know, Western philosophy and ideas from probably interacting with Westerners who are coming to fight, as well as just how to fight the Ottomans in a kind of guerrilla war, and they're going to bring that knowledge back to Bulgaria. But overall, as the uprising actually started to find some success, the Greek rebels also began to fight amongst themselves, 
really just adding to the overall violence. This in particular led to a quick defeat in Thrace and Macedonia. So remember, kind of the uprising, it's it's doing all right in the Peloponnese and central Greece, not doing well in Thrace and Macedonia. It's pretty quickly uh, kind of gotten rid of there. And there's also some pretty extensive fighting going on in Crete and Cyprus. Now, at some point during 1821, I couldn't find any information on the exact date, the Persians scored a major victory over a far larger Ottoman army at the Battle of Erzurum, further dividing Ottoman attention between their concerns over Persia, their concerns over Ali Pasha, and their concerns about the Greek rebels. Still, nothing much is going to happen in the war between the Persians and the Ottomans for the next two years until the Treaty of Erzurum is going to be signed in 1823, which basically just confirms the border and doesn't trade any territory. So ultimately, this Persian war doesn't have a massive impact other than simply further dividing Ottoman attention. In 1822, Ali Pasha's capital city was finally taken and he was finally killed. That means that, again, although the war with Persia is still technically going on, the Ottomans can really now focus far more of their resources on solely defeating the Greeks. Although, the asterisk of that is that Russia's anger over the killing of the Greek patriarch meant that the Ottomans were very concerned about Russia declaring war and had to move a lot of soldiers to the border to protect against that possibility. So again, much like with the second Serbian uprising, you know, Russia can basically ostensibly say, we are against these rebels, but with its actions still greatly aid the rebels. And even if Russia says, you know, we're not going to declare war, uh, the Ottomans can't be that sure. You know, it's, it's a big gamble to take to leave that border undefended. And so they have to move a lot of soldiers there. Now, around this time, the first Greek National Assembly also met and passed a declaration of independence and a kind of provisional constitution. Still, overall, despite these advances, the Greek Revolution still had no coherent leadership and survived largely because the Ottoman response to it was so fragmented. So, taking a broader vision here, you know, it, it, the Greek Revolution's on a precipice. You know, they're, they're having some successes, they're having some failures. We can easily see it going all the way to success or all the way to failure at this point. But some big events are about to happen. In 1822, we also saw a brutal, brutal massacre of Greek civilians on the island of Chios, with around 25,000 killed and another 45,000 sold into slavery. Together, this represented more than half of the Greek population on the island. So clearly, the brutality of the war was only escalating. And another element contributing to this was that the Ottomans were increasingly turning to hiring Albanian mercenaries instead of using the Ottoman army to fight. No surprise if you hire a bunch of mercenaries, well, you get much more brutality. Mercenaries aren't as well trained, they aren't as disciplined, and their big concern is money, and an easier way to get money is, of course, to kill people, to rob them, all these kinds of things. So the fact that the Ottoman army is so weak, that the Ottomans are having to send their army far away to places like the Russian border and to Anatolia to fight the Persians means that there's more mercenaries going on. So at the same time, while those distractions are helping the Greek revolution, it's also really upping the level of violence. But 
that violence is also in a way helping the Greek revolutionaries, because as newspapers spread news about these brutal measures, support for the Greeks is increasing throughout Europe, putting pressure on European governments to alter their anti-revolutionary stance. And this is something we're going to see happen in a very similar way to Bulgaria much later. Yep, still, when representatives of the Holy Alliance countries of Austria, Russia, and Prussia met in August of that year, they didn't even discuss Greece, and they turned away a Greek delegation who arrived to lobby them. So although there's still this kind of grassroots measurement movement, it's not affecting all countries. But Still, to be frank, Austria, Prussia, and Russia are the three least likely countries to be affected by, you know, public opinion. Whereas Great Britain and France are much, much more susceptible to public opinion because of, well, a little bit more democratic, much more in the UK, but still more newspapers, more kind of civil society, all these kinds of things. So the rest of 1822 saw more of a mixed bag in Greece, victories and losses on both sides and the taking of many more lives. 1823 saw some more military victories for the Greeks, but this was really balanced by continued political infighting on the part of the Greek revolutionaries. In particular, the Kapoi, or the Greek bandits, well, I'll let Misha Glenny put it this way, quote, they wanted simply to take the place of the Turks or the Greek primates. The institution of the Ottoman Empire, the Pashas, the Agas, the tax farmers, represented an immutable order for these largely uneducated men, especially those ignorant of the ideology unleashed on Europe by the French Revolution. They were equally unaware of the Hellenic revival inspired by the Greek diaspora and fostered by the Philhellenes. So in other words, you know, there's some Greek revolutionaries who have these big ideas about independence and, you know, a revival of kind of ancient Greek ideals, da, 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 da. And then there's these, you know, kind of Greek bandits who all they've ever known is Ottoman institutions. And their greatest goal is to simply, you know, keep those institutions, but they get on top, right? Keep the exact same system, keep all the same abuses, but have them benefit from it instead of Turks or, in a lot of cases, other Greeks. And so you can imagine the kind of infighting that this is causing and that, you know, things aren't super smooth between, you know, the, the guys who just say, yeah, let's just beat the Ottomans and take over the institutions and the folks talking about grand ideas about, uh, you know, revolution and, and Philhellenism and all these kinds of things. You know, th- these are very different people really talking past each other. So unsurprisingly, these groups are going to fight amongst themselves almost just as much as they are going to fight the Ottomans, sometimes even resorting to scorched earth tactics to force peasants to join them by destroying their farms. That's something that these Greek bandits learn to do. And so you can imagine, you know, even the Greeks fighting for Greek independence are really abusing many Greek peasants and putting them in extremely difficult situations. And in doing so, really destroying a lot of the potential wealth and the food and all these things of the Greek countryside. And so you are fighting for an independent Greece, but also hobbling that potential independent Greece. Now, this, all these tactics obviously clashed with what the Greek National Assembly was trying to accomplish. In 1824, the Greeks managed to obtain a substantial loan from supporters in London, again, showing just how vital outside support was for these uprisings. And obviously money is going to help them a lot when they need things like artillery. But that year also saw a major turn in the fighting. 
Sultan Mahmud II was extremely frustrated with the lack of progress against the Greeks, and so he finally played his trump card. While the Ottoman army had proved itself very ineffectual time and time again, the Egyptian army under Muhammad Ali had recently defeated the Saudis and conquered Sudan, and had implemented many of the military reforms that well, Mahmoud II wished he could implement in the Ottoman army. So although the Sultan was very concerned about Muhammad Ali's growing power and independence, he was desperate at this point, and so a deal was offered. Ali would get to control Crete and Cyprus if he could defeat the rebels. That was enough for him, and so Muhammad Ali quickly assembled an impressive force, 54 warships, 400 transports ready to move 14,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry, along with substantial artillery, all the way across the Mediterranean to land in Greece. Now, this may not have been a massive force as far as pure numbers, but the difference was in quality. It was exceptionally well-trained by French officers and was battle-hardened. They set sail in July of 1824 and quickly put down any resistance in Crete and Cyprus. By the end of 1824, the Egyptian force had completed its job there and turned to mainland Greece. They landed in the Peloponnese in February of 1825, shocking the Greeks, who didn't think the Egyptians could possibly make a landing in the stormier winter seas of the Mediterranean. Even after this feat, the Greeks didn't initially take the Egyptian force very seriously. Well, that is, until the Greeks started losing battle after battle against these well-trained, hardened soldiers. In light of these defeats, a Greek naval force attempted to destroy the Egyptian fleet and thus cut their army off from supplies. Greek ships snuck into the harbor at Alexandria and attempted to attack the tightly packed Egyptian fleet with fire ships, but a sudden change in the wind foiled the entire attack. With these defeats, European concern increased, particularly with a conspiracy theory running around that the Egyptians planned on enslaving the entire Greek population, removing them and taking them to Egypt, and then repopulating the entire territory with Egyptian peasants. As a part of this concern, more money was raised in London. Now, after basically squandering the funds of the first loan, the Greeks got a second loan from their London backers. That might sound familiar to some, but that's contemporary. This time, though, the Londoners, well, they were a little more concerned and wanted to make sure that this money was spent on behalf of Greece, and, well, they no longer trusted the Greeks to do that. So they basically spent the money on their behalf. This combination of the two huge loans would actually cripple Greece with debt for decades. Now, with the end of 1825, I want to kind of take a step somewhere else and catch us up with a few things going on elsewhere. Now, first, I want to read an extended quote from R.J. Crampton going into more detail about the growing Bulgarian prosperity that was happening during this whole era. Quote, There were Bulgarian trading concerns with links to Buda, Vienna, Venice, Livorno, Marseille, Leipzig, Brasov, and Odessa, and in most of these cities there were small Bulgarian colonies. In the Vardar Valley, cotton was being produced for sale in distant markets such as Leipzig, Dresden, and Vienna. And residential cotton merchants from these and other European cities were to be found in a number of Balkan towns. Some of this cotton was shipped out through the Mediterranean, 
but most of it went all the way to Central Europe by pack horse and was taken thus to Danubian ports such as Wieden or Svistov. With tobacco, cotton formed the most important export commodity produced in Bulgarian lands in the 18th century. The wax was also exported to Western Europe, as was some of the rice grown in the Maritza Valley. A commodity with a more limited market appeal was abba, a coarse grain cloth produced by many Bulgarian guilds in towns such as Starozagora, Kolofer, Karlovo, Plovdiv, Sliven, and others. Another lucrative occupation was animal husbandry. Centers such as Constantinople and Adrianople with large Muslim populations consumed considerable quantities of meat, particularly mutton, and the Bulgarian sheep raisers who supplied them became wealthy. Many inhabitants of Kotel in the Balkan mountains spent their time rearing sheep in the Dobruja plains and then driving them to market in the cities south of the Balkan mountain range. The profits from animal husbandry greatly outstripped those from arable farming, in part because the government excised a monopoly over the grain trade, buying in the domestic market at low prices and strenuously forbidding exports. The Kurjolstvo interrupted but did not destroy their established trade, which recovered rapidly as soon as order had been restored. It was upon the wealth thus created that the Bulgarian cultural revival was built. End quote. So, while the money needed to fund the Bulgarian National Revival was slowly up and coming, the other elements were also coming into place. As we know, the Slavo-Bulgarian history written by Hilandarsky was slowly being reprinted and disseminated. But another work also came about during this period which was going to have a major impact, this time from a man named Petr Beron. Born in 1799 in Kotel, Bulgaria, Beron then studied in the area before continuing his education in Bucharest. At this point, he was around 25, and he wrote his first school primer, a kind of encyclopedia. It was the first book of its kind written in modern Bulgarian, and it was also the first secular publication in modern Bulgaria. This was important because up to this point, what education existed in Bulgaria was done by cell schools attached to monasteries and was almost entirely religious in nature. It was also either conducted in Greek or Old Church Slavonic, both a far cry from the Bulgarian that people spoke and understood. But Beron was aware of the Western European style of secular education and wished to use it to help educate the Bulgarian people. His book was published in Brasov, a city in Austrian Transylvania, just over the border with Wallachia. In other words, it was published about as close to Ottoman territory as possible without, well, being in it. The book also helped introduce the Bell-Lancaster system into Bulgaria. This system was designed to accommodate the initial educational resources being very limited by having older students help teach younger ones instead of having everyone learn from one teacher. Remember, having everyone learn from one teacher works fine if you can have one teacher for each kind of, you know, educational level or each uh, age level, each class. But imagine you have 20 students and some are seven and some are 20. Well, it's really hard to teach all those people at once. And that's where the Bell-Lancaster system really made a difference. It helped Bulgaria's educational revolution continue despite its comparative lack of resources. Now, a quick kind of fun note, Beron is also the man portrayed on the 10 Leva banknote. So, if you see one, you can spot him there. Now, 
The same year Baron published his book, 1824, also saw clashes between Bulgarians and Greek clergy in the city of Vratsa. The premier Greek church official in the area was accused of abusing his power, and this argument marked the first serious challenge to the primacy of Greek clergy in the Orthodox Church throughout Bulgaria. I think I've mentioned this a bit before, but this is kind of a point of contention here, because overwhelmingly, the clergy of the Orthodox Church in Bulgaria is made up of Greeks, and that throughout the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman or the, the Orthodox establishment is overwhelmingly controlled by Greeks. And I mentioned most of the religious education was done in either Old Church Bulgarian, Old Church Slavonic rather, or in Greek. And so this kind of primacy of Greek is being challenged. And this is one of the other parts of the slowly building Bulgarian national revival, the sense that, you know, Bulgarians deserve their own church, which is populated by Bulgarians, and the language of which is Bulgarian. Now, 1825 also saw the death of Tsar Alexander I of Russia from typhus. Now, Alexander had been a liberal and a reformer, although the events of the Napoleonic Wars had made it rather difficult for him to enact many of the policies he desired. It wasn't exactly an easy time to be a reformer in the countries being attacked by Napoleon. He was succeeded by his younger brother, Nicholas, who was far from a liberal. In fact, he is seen as perhaps the most reactionary Tsar Russia had ever seen, employing armies of secret police and censors to prevent any attacks on his reign. His ascension to the throne triggered a revolt by army officers and supporters. However, the revolt was crushed, entrenching Russian autocracy for nearly a century longer. With the ascension of Nicholas, despite his reactionary tendencies, he was also far more in favor of Greek independence because he wished to weaken the Ottomans. The British dispatched the Duke of Wellington to St. Petersburg to discuss a proposal to mediate with the Ottomans and possibly give Greece autonomy within the empire, basically what the Serbs had at this point. But the Austrian foreign minister and the architect of the Concert of Europe, Metternich, said, quote, Is England then ready to regard as a power equal to the rights of the British king, the first Irish club, which declares itself the insurgent government of Ireland? to regard as justified the French power which would accept the office of mediator by reason of the sole fact that the invitation had been addressed to it by the Irish government? Whither does this absurdity not lead us? End quote. Now, the language is a bit roundabout, but essentially he's making this comparison of the Greeks to the Irish and saying, okay, you know, Britain, how would you feel if the Irish rose up and everyone basically gave them the time of day and, and considered, yeah, yeah, I, I think the Irish should be given autonomy within Great Britain? Well, the British wouldn't like that very much. And so Menernik is, he's kind of the, the arch defender of the concert of Europe and the status quo. And so he's trying to use uh, these kind of similarities to defend that. And incidentally, we see that in politics a lot today, right? When you have some territory that wants to break away from another country, other countries that have a potential breakaway territory are, are generally very against it and can see that this could be a you know dangerous precedent for them. But despite the opposition from Metternich, Tsar Nicholas sent a demand to the Ottomans that they evacuate Wallachia and Moldavia, in addition to sending representatives to the Russians to kind of work out all of these issues. The Sultan, well, didn't agree to the Wallachia and Moldavia stuff, but did agree to send representatives. I mean, he didn't have much choice. He needed time. He couldn't risk the Russians declaring war. So what was he going to do? And 
that's where we're going to leave off today with the Greek War of Independence not going that well, particularly against the newly arrived Egyptians, but with the great powers gradually shifting their stance on the Greek issue in large part in response to the bloody brutality of the whole business and the influence of public opinion in newspapers raising awareness about that brutality. Next time, we'll see this war resolved and Sultan Mahmud II take one of the most decisive actions in the history of the empire, finally resolving an issue that has been driving him and his predecessors crazy for a long time. In other words, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com and check out the Facebook page to see all kinds of updates and interesting content. And with that, I'll catch you in the next one.